this is another of the occasional episodes of Behind the Book, a conversation about the people, places, and ideas associated with my new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, which, I should add, is available from your local bookstore and from the usual online vendors. If you're interested in getting a signed copy, then go to the Historically Thinking website and click on the tab labeled Daniel Morgan to find three wonderful bookstores that would be happy to sell one to you. Hello, my guest today is Don Hagist. He is the author of The Revolution's Last Men, The Soldiers Behind the Photographs, published by Westholm in 2015. But he is best known uh, as an expert on the British soldier in the American Revolution. He's written British Soldiers, American War, also from Westholm, published in 2012, A British Soldier's Story, Roger Lamb's Narrative of the American Revolution, and he's, uh, do you still run that uh, great website with biographies of various British soldiers? I do, thanks. It's called British Soldiers American Revolution, and it's at Redcoat76, that's words and then two digits, at .blogspot.com. You are also the managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution, which is a great online and uh, published once a year compilation of articles that appeared online. Um, it's published once a day, not once a year. Yeah, but in, the, in, in a book form, like the oh, right, American right. Heritage thing, yeah. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> no, it is, uh, it is updated continuously. So it's both ephemeral and cyber and yet also very real and hardbound, and so it's a nice combination of, of things. Um, so how are you at 7 in the morning? You, oh, just great. Nothing um, like talking about flogging. Hey, I'm always up for it. <laughs> how did you... Uh, you got the audience, I got the data. <laughs> how did you uh, get interested in British soldiers? Because I know that by day, Don Hagist is a mild-mannered engineering consultant. So how did this happen? That you also, at 7 in the morning, talk about flogging British soldiers? Well, it's an interesting question. And like many of our interests, these things tended to evolve over our lifetime. So um, as a kid, I always liked reading military biographies. I found the things that were most interesting to me were stories written, firsthand accounts by people who were at war, um, particularly aviators in World War II, I really liked. But when I got interested in the American Revolution, I wanted to find more personal accounts about soldiers who fought in that war. And there are quite a lot of American accounts, um, nothing like the numbers for later wars, of course, the farther back you go in history, the less primary source material we tend to have. But there was still quite a lot. And there was a sense that Americans who fought in the American Revolution, after it was all over, as they got later in life, they knew that they had taken part in something that was really, really important. Mm -hmm. So people preserved personal papers and they wrote memoirs to a reasonable degree. But when I started looking for the same kind of information about people on the other side, I was very disappointed to find how little there was. Now, if you look at the British Army, like any army, you've got officers and you've got common soldiers, and it's not too difficult to find at least some information about the officers. These were people of the upper classes of society. 
And there are a fair number of diaries, journals, collections of letters and whatnot. But if you want to find out about the soldiers, who, of course, constitute most of the army and do most of the work, and you want to find their own writings about their experiences, it turns out to be amazingly scarce material for the British Army. Yeah, with the exception of uh, Roger Lamb, who you narrated, which is, he actually wrote two narratives, didn't he? Well, yeah, and actually Roger Lamb is an anomaly because yeah. he was a very prolific writer later in his life, and he wrote he wrote a book that included his experiences in America, and for marketability, he tried to write a history of the American Revolution, including what he did in it. And it's not a bad book, but it's 400 pages long, of which about 75 pages are his own experience, and he writes about the Continental Congress, and he writes about Lexington and Concord, which occurred before he arrived in America, and all. In order to try to write a history of the whole conflict, he includes an awful lot of material that he himself didn't experience. Mm -hmm. So two years later, he wrote another book, and in the introduction, he says, in effect, yeah, the editors cut out a whole lot of stuff that I really wanted in the first book, so I'm writing my own book, and I'm self-publishing this one, and I'm going to include all the stuff that I want to say that the editors didn't want to put in. Yeah. Which is really nice, but because it, it includes a rich amount of Lamb's own personal experiences, but it also includes a slew of things that he just wants to say that have nothing to do with his life and experiences as a soldier <laughs> in America. Yeah. So I look at these two books, a total of about 700 pages, and say, wow, if anything cries out for abridgment, this cries out for abridgment. Yeah. And I just took out all of the things that Lamb had to say that didn't relate to his experience as a British soldier and I, left in everything that was his experience as a British soldier. But Lamb is unusual. He's an Irish school teacher by that time. So he uh, apparently he was prone to be garrulous. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but most aren't. So you have to trace them. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say well, it's, it's as bad. It's, it's better than trying to track down enslaved people. Um, perhaps sometimes, uh, but it's probably, I mean, it's hard. Well, that's true. And the place where it becomes addicting, even though it's difficult. Yeah. Um, I had the really good fortune very early in my, um, in my research career when I was in my early twenties and I was just out of college and had this thing called free time for the first time in my life. And very soon after that, I was able to get to the British National Archives and work with collections of British Army muster rolls. And muster rolls are just lists of names of men who served in regiments, but for me interested in learning about soldiers as individuals, just having a list of names really changes your perspective on what would otherwise be just an amorphous number of soldiers. You say, well, the British garrison in Rhode Island had three British regiments of 500 men each. And it's like, okay, that's nice and numeric. But when all of a sudden you have a list of all of their names, you say, wow, there's Sergeant William Avis, and there's Sergeant um, Joseph Lovell. And oh, all of a sudden there's a greater tangibility to that, and it makes you want to find out, well, who was Private Joseph Lovell? 
He's, you know, he had a name. He was a person. And that led me into other archival materials that start to put something more around the names. And it turns out for about a third of the British soldiers who served in America, you can find out some basic information like their age and where they were born, what kind of a career they pursued before they joined the British Army, and some other little details like that. For others who, who don't fall into that particular category, it's really, really difficult to find this kind of information. Mm -hmm. So I tell people doing this kind of research, it's like trying to do a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, but you have to go out and find all of the pieces. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you don't really know what the picture is going to look like yet. You just have to start finding pieces and and see how they fit together before you even know what it's a picture of. Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely metaphor. I, I heard um, a former CIA analyst refer to his job as putting together jigsaw uh, puzzle pieces when you only get three a day arriving in the mail. Oh, yeah, that's well put. <laughs> and you have no idea what the picture is. Yeah, and, and you yourself know as an author that one of your greatest enemies is your own predisposition about what the picture might be. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because you can't prevent yourself from deciding, oh, I bet I know where this is going. Yeah. No, in, in the, the hypotheses that we develop, which become iron theories, um, <laughs> which uh, then will pervert every evidence that piece of evidence that we touch. Um, at least we don't have bench testing. We don't have, uh, fortunately, we don't have a lab for this. Um, uh, it relies upon our own um, discipline and uh, force of will uh, and also uh, disposition to rethink our hypotheses. That's, uh, that's kind of a high standard for human beings. <laughs> well, it is, and history is challenging to us because there is only one right answer. You know, when you want to say what happened I, I recall reading an article recently where a person was writing about a cold case murder and he said well i've done all this research and i say that there's a 60 percent chance that this was the person who committed that crime and i said you can't use statistics like that there was one person did commit the crime there's no probability involved <laughs> and, and and history is like that we're trying to figure out something or other or a series of things and there was only one thing that actually happened whether we like it or not it yeah. doesn't really help us to have alternate theories <laughs> let's uh, talk a little bit about the british army um it's uh now it's a mis the, the pre even the pre world war one british army. it's a mysterious organization and people are apt to confuse little bits of hornblower and cs forrester and patrick o'brien often confuse the navy with the army um, the so true. Yeah, the Navy, uh, people often, you still don't fail to realize this, and it's sort of one of the largest, <laughs> uh, sort of, ma other than Atlantic slavery, the other ma uh, massive, uh, against your will, labor organizations was the Royal Navy, um, which impressed sailors, took them off the streets, whether they wanted to be or not, out of other ships, and made them into sailors for basically an unspecified amount of time. Um the army was different. So how did one become a British soldier in 1775? 
It's a great question because the Army sure was different, and it's great that you frame the question very specifically by saying in 1775. Yeah. <laughs> it's like many things, you know, a, a lot of people will tend to say, how did you do this in the 18th century? Right. And, well, it's not the same depending when it is. So at the beginning of the American Revolution, there were British soldiers already in America, quite a lot of them. And they were here to prevent a war. So these were not wartime soldiers. They were peacetime soldiers sent to keep the peace. And when you enlisted in the British Army as a peacetime soldier, there were some key factors. One is that you volunteered. It was not legal for the British Army to force people in in any way. They didn't have drafting or conscription the term drafting had a different meaning at the time, so they didn't have drafting in the modern sense of it. You could not require a civilian to become a soldier. It was an all-volunteer force. And it was also an all-volunteer force of career soldiers. So when you took your enlistment oath, you didn't enlist for a two-year stint or a four-year hitch or whatever. You just enlisted which some people think sounds strange, but it's very much like most of us when we take a job, we don't take the job and say, yes, sir, I'm here to work for you for two years. We just take the job. We may quit after a while, but in general, when you joined the British Army in the decade leading up to the American Revolution, so most of the soldiers were here had enlisted sometime within the previous 10 years, it was voluntary. And the expectation was that you were going to serve until you were no longer fit for service. What did that mean? Oh, well, fit for service. Now, most of the people I'm going to talk about are infantry soldiers. The British Army had infantry, it had cavalry, it had artillery. The infantry was by far the most numerous in the army in general. And if we look only at soldiers that served in America, it was almost exclusively infantry. There was only a little bit of artillery and a little bit of cavalry, proportionally. So an infantryman, to be fit for service, has to be able to live much of his life on his feet and much of his life outdoors. And living on his feet means marching from place to place, not necessarily always marching in step to the beat of a drum, but everywhere he goes, he has to walk there. Um, at the opening of the American Revolution, the, the Lexington and Concord was the battles that we talk about. And it's easy to lose the context of this, that the British soldiers on that day, on April 19, 1775, they walked from Boston to Concord, Massachusetts, and back in one day. That's about, it's a little bit under 40 miles so even if you take the fighting out of it and just say, hey, everybody, today we're going to go on a 40-mile walk. Who's with me? Well, this is what was meant by a British infantryman being fit for service. This was an expectation to be able to do this sort of thing on a moment's notice because that was a pretty routine kind of expedition. A little bit on the long side, but it wasn't generally wildly out of the expectations of what a British soldier might do. And if we were to take a random sample of those British soldiers, and this is where the statistics come in, if I were just to grab a man out of the ranks, any man, 
odds are pretty good that he would be between 25 and 35 years old. It's about a 20% chance that he'd be over 35 and maybe possibly even as old as about 55, or about a 20% chance that he'd be somewhere between the ages of 20 and 25. There's almost no chance he would be under 20 years old. And there's a, he might possibly be in his 50s, there were a few of them, but most of them as career volunteer soldiers who are fit for service are somewhere between 25 and 35 years of age and have somewhere between five and 10 years of experience in the army under their belt. What, um, who were they? Uh, Napoleon, uh, no, Napoleon, Wellington supposedly said that his army, uh, in 1815 was the, what, scum of the earth led by the fool of family, uh, which I doubt he said since that said something about him, um, <laughs> uh, implied something about him. Um, but were they the scum of the earth? You, you referred earlier to, um, them having previous professions. Certainly we do think of them as being the sweepings of the gutter. Um, but that's really unfair and inaccurate, I think. That's exactly correct. It is unfair and inaccurate, and this, too, gets into the tendency to compress periods of history and, um, and, and homogenize different time periods that were actually quite different from each other. The British Army in the 1770s and 1780s was very, very different than the British Army in the late 1790s and early 1800s. So right away, comparisons don't do well. And if, if this sounds bad, I say, well, think about the American army that fought in the Vietnam War compared to the American army that fought in the first Persian Gulf War in 1991. Uh -huh. Just the whole way it was composed and managed. Well, those things were only 15 years apart. Yeah. So the Napoleonic Wars were only 15 years after the American Revolution. How much could have changed? Well, a lot can change. So... The whole scum of the earth thing really, really, really requires a lot of context for it to even make sense. And we have to take off our 20th century vision. Um, and one thing to remember with that quote, because there are people in the 1770s who talked about the soldiers being sweepings of the gutter and whatnot. These quotes have very specific contexts and it's very bad to try to generalize them. Getting back to the question you asked, the all-volunteer force of career soldiers included quite a spectrum of people, so it's really risky to generalize them, but about a, a little over half of the soldiers in the British Army had pursued some kind of a trade or some kind of a professional career before they made the choice to enlist in the army. Um, thinking about the time period, a young man in Britain might go to school until he was about 12 years old. It was very unusual for people to pursue education after the age of 12 or 13. It was quite common to have an education up until about that age. Not everybody did, but a pretty good proportion had had some schooling. So right away we have some measure of literacy and some measure of education being not at all unusual in the army. 
and I'm using broad terms because it's hard to measure these things precisely. Um, well, if a man is now 12 years old, or a young man is 12 years old, he's out of school, he's got to do something with his life, and he's too young to join the army. The army looks for men who are fully grown or likely lads who look like they're going to grow up well. And if we look carefully at this demographic data, we find that most British soldiers, and here when I say most, I'm talking a number somewhere in 80% or so, enlisted between the ages of 20 and 25. So now we've got all these kids who, by the time they're 12, if they went to school at all, they're getting out of school at 12 or 13 years old, but we know that they're not enlisting until they're around 20 or so. What did they do in the meantime? Apprenticeships. Right, exactly. They pursued something other than the army. They, they uh, took apprenticeships or they did unskilled labor of different sorts, which mm -hmm. in 18th century Britain primarily means agricultural work. Yeah. So you've got large numbers of farm workers and you've got large numbers of people who went through an apprenticeship and then when they were done with it decided that that career wasn't for them for whatever reason and went off and joined the army instead. This, By the way, I hadn't thought enough about this, but this is a very interesting perspective, which I don't think I've seen anyone reflect on. Maybe it's not important, but I suspect it is, about the logistics of the British Army in North America. Um, when you've got people who have probably reached journeyman status and say, well, maybe they have, um, maybe they they might have done. Um, they might not have been able to find a, a position after being an apprentice, um, but they've been a cobbler. Well, that is very nice to have a cobbler in your platoon. Um, it's very nice to have a, a couple millwright apprentices uh, in your platoon when you're marching through North Carolina and you need uh, a mill to be uh, sort of uh, uh, rehabilitated from the sabotage that some local militia have done to it so that you can grind corn. It's very nice to even have a farm laborers to be able to go and reap, um, skillfully reap, quickly reap a field of wheat there by the side of the, the route as you're going through Virginia. It changes the logistics of the British Army a lot. Well, it does. And when you say you've never heard anybody talk about this perspective before, I can tell you've never been to one of my lectures on the demographics of the British Army. Yeah, I can tell that. I actually have some slides that are exactly about this Other, other than flogging, and we're going to get to that eventually. Apologize yeah, to the listener. If we look at the trades in the British Army, we find, um, well, that we find that they reflect the society from which the army came, of course. So we have a lot of laborers. We have about 45% laborers. And then when we go into this other 55% that had some kind of trades, the predominant one is weaving. Mm -hmm. Well, why are so many weavers in the army? Well, guess what about Great Britain? Their number <laughs> one in trade was textiles. And, they had a lot of weavers in their society, and that but reflects uh, mechanization too. Uh, that's the that's these are these are cottage weavers who can't sure. fi can't find increasingly can't find work in the 1770s, 1780s. Uh, footnote to Nick uh, to Luddites. So, and then when we get past that, we start finding a pretty high incidence of tailors hmm. and shoemakers that you mentioned. And sure enough, if we look at how the British Army operated, the soldiers received a uniform every year, but it was tailored and fitted to him after it arrived at the regiment. And then armies 
often received bulk materials to make additional clothing, overalls for out of wool for winter use or linen for summer use and other things. And every regiment had its group of tailors. Now they were soldiers first and tailors second, but they did tailor and work for the army. Uh, mending shoes was pretty easy when you have 20 or 30 tailors in your regiment of 500 men. And we also have to say, uh, people cannot conceive, probably. I mean, if you think how, how fast you go through a, a pair of hiking boots, imagine, uh, yeah. imagine wearing dress shoes up and down the road, quote unquote, roads of the Carolinas and Virginia. Um, well, and also imagine having your pair of dress shoes and then also having a pair of spare soles and spare heels for yeah, it yeah, yeah okay they're worn out and now you've got your soles and heels what the heck are you going to do with them exactly. well fortunately you've got a few shoemakers in your, with you in your company who, who know how to handle that sort of thing um we also find proportions of carpenters and masons and glaziers and thatchers and all the kind of people that you want to have around if you need to do things like build huts mm -hmm. and repair barracks. So almost any trade that the army needs has somewhere in its ranks. And it's so taken for granted that that's the case that you find general orders in Boston, for example, that say every regiment to send two carpenters to the barrack master's office to help repair the barracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's Just a, by seeing an order like that, we know they can take for granted that every regiment has at least two carpenters in it. You know, there's plenty of them out uh, there. Uh, yeah, every, that, that way of that way of society, even the way of society or the army being organized is so foreign to us that I, I'm sure some historians have had a hard time figuring out what that meant. Did it, they? Well, it's true. And yet we find orders that say every regiment to send a baker yeah. to the commissary. Well, and every regiment must have some bakers in it if you get orders like that. Yeah. yeah. So these skills are pervasive within the army. And as you say, they allow an army of empire to operate in faraway places. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, uh, well, soldiers misbehave, and that brings us to flogging. Um, this is one of my favorite essays I stumbled across. This is from Adam Stephen, who will later be a major general in the Continental Army. At the time, he's a lieutenant colonel of the Virginia Regiment. He's basically George Washington's second-in-command, and he's writing in July 1756, uh, to George Washington. He says, um, nothing remarkable has occurred in this neighborhood since you left us. We catch two in the very act of desertion and have wheeled them till they piss themselves and the spectators shed tears for them, which will, I hope, answer the end of punishment. Now, I uh, read that just to make clear to listeners that uh, the British Army is not the only people that flogged uh, deserters or, or miscreants, um, everyone did it, uh, and Americans did it, sometimes more enthusiastically. I've got a records here of Washington ordering a couple of deserters uh, to be flogged with 1,500 lashes, um, and two or three people who merely hinted that they might desert got 500 lashes. Um, we really, There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, <laughs> So let's start, should we start with like uh, punishment in the British Army and how it changed over the 18th century? Kind of a lot. 
Well, we can, but I'm limited because I don't know enough about how it changed over the 18th yeah. century. Well, I studied it was, in great detail in the 1770s and 1780s. Yeah, I read up a little on Mar Marlboro. Let's put it this way. Marlboro's army was a lot more creative. Um, okay. It was uh, kind of weird, some of the punishments they came up with. By, um, but by 1775, certainly, flogging is base. Is that the only punishment that's usually given out in terms of corporal punishment? Uh, Riding the horse, do they still do that? Pretty much, because every once in a while you find an anomaly. But by yeah, by the 1770s in the British Army, if you get corporal punishment, it's flogging. Yeah, right. And, and the point is well taken that there were a lot of in, in militaries in general during the time period. There were a lot of other corporal punishment yeah. techniques, but the British had pretty well settled down to flogging. And yeah. just to give some context, I base my information. I've had the good fortune of finding some lists of court cases, trials, and punishments that were given within regiments where corporal punishment was the punishment of choice. And I've looked at about 1,500 cases. So when I say in general, it's a pretty good data sample. It has some limitations. But corporal punishment, yes, was flogging in the British Army. So what um, – I guess we should start with uh, what could I get flogged for? Um, I mentioned desertion, um, uh, attempted desertion. Um, this is a behind-the-book sort of bonus episode. So I'm thinking a lot here about Dan Morgan who struck an officer. Um, obviously, those things get flogging. Um, Yes, yeah, that striking an officer was a bad career move, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and does that require, do either any of those things, does a desertion or striking an officer, does that require a court-martial, or is that just summary? And this is one of the perspectives that is often missing, is that the British Army was a fairly legalistic bunch. Yeah. When you enlisted in the Army, you took an oath of enlistment, and then you had to be sworn before a magistrate, which was a check and balance to be sure you weren't being coerced into the army and what have you. And then you had this big document read to you called the Articles of War. Mm -hmm. And certain parts of the Article of War got read to you over and over and over again throughout your career, every few weeks. And the Articles of War laid out what military law was, what was expected and required of the officers and of the soldiers. And it included all sorts of little things like um, if a soldier finds something that doesn't belong to him, he's required to turn it in to his officers. You can't, it's not finders keepers in the army. Well, of course, this is a law that ultimately helps prevent things like plundering and what have you. So if it doesn't belong to you as a soldier, you can't keep it. Um, it has basic expectations like having to be in attendance when you're required to be in attendance. Um, the Articles of War aren't hard to find. You can They're published online in a number of places, and you can read through them, but it talks about the obligations of the soldier to the army, and it also talks about the obligations of the army to the soldier. Mm -hmm. So there's a contract going on, and any violation of the Articles of War, then you're subject to a trial and a punishment for it. Mm -hmm. Can you, uh, are there certain punishments uh, which do not get a trial? Are there a summary? 
Yes, but they are not corporal punishments. Okay. What are they? A soldier can be confined. Okay. So if you're just generally being misbehaving and irascible, but an officer doesn't want to go through the labor of charging you with a crime, he can simply confine you for a few days or a week. Mm -hmm. And confined can have whatever meaning is needed, but it's usually confined to the barracks or to the guard room. We're not talking about putting you in a solitary confinement cell. We're just talking about restricting your movements for a week as a minor punishment. Uh -huh. Now, when Morgan struck that officer, he was a teamster contracted to the army who was apparently under army discipline. Um, that's my hypothesis. Um, I wouldn't cry if I was wrong, but I think that's probably what it was. Uh, would he have had to been uh, tried by a court-martial? Theoretically. Yeah. yeah. Now, this happened in a time period that I have not studied in detail. Right. This occurred during the French and Indian War, yes? And it, yeah, and it probably occurred during Braddock's March. Um, okay, so, so, it, it's, so a, it's a little risky for me to say I, I would know for sure. But my expectation would be, yes, that yeah. in order to be left, particularly in order to be lashed in the somewhat ritual way of being sentenced to receive 500 lashes, that smacks of having had some kind of a trial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so when you get lashed, uh, first of all, what are you lashed with? When I, I heard you give a talk on, on this, uh, you entered uh, with a whip, which was uh, interesting. Uh, to the titillation of the audience, and you began to beat beat things. Uh, what what did you have in your hand? Because I was in the back of the room and couldn't see it so well. Well, what I had in my hand was a cat of nine tails that was made out of hemp rope that was tied in particular ways. So, um, as the name implies, a cat of nine tails. It's a lash that has a handle. In this case, the handle was just part of the woven rope part of the braided rope, and then it has nine individual strands that come out from it, and on this one, each strand was about two feet long, and then in the ends of those strands, there are some knots tied, so it's got a little bit of bulk at the end of each strand. Mm -hmm. and I want to find out, okay, what was a British Army lash like in the 18th century? And the challenge here is that there was no singular regulation lash. Every regiment went out and purchased these things as often as they needed them from wherever they could get them. And there was no standard. There wasn't a singular place making whips for the British Army. That were all <laughs> yeah, or imagine, and, a royal warrant, uh, whip, well, whip makers yeah. to the, royal, the British Army. <laughs> yeah, so there certainly wasn't one of those. So I started looking for descriptions of them, and it turns out descriptions are really hard to find. Yeah, and they are. Looking up on the internet descriptions of whips and lashes and things you end up going to a lot of places yeah. you don't want to go so it takes takes a while to find these things but eventually we can find some descriptions i found several some of which unfortunately were written after the time period i'm concerned with and in some cases it was people writing in the early 1800s talking about what they remembered mm -hmm. which is a little risky but i found uh, one writer in 1786 wrote a cat of nine tails is a whip with nine lashes made of whip cord, each lash knotted with nine knots. 
Okay, so that's straightforward. Whipcord is a very fine twisted uh, piece of probably linen cord during this time period. I couldn't, I wasn't able to get a lash that was actually made out of whipcords. The ones that I have made of hemp rope is much, each strand is much bulkier mm -hmm. than I think the lashes of the time period. So they, so it would probably, the lash I have is probably blunter and would sting less if you were hit with it. Um, another description was written by a member of parliament in 1832, and he was talking about what he remembered from the 1780s and 1790s. He said, the cats and nine tails that I have seen and used were made of a thick and strong kind of whipcord, and in each lash, nine in number and generally about two feet long, were tied three large knots. Huh. Well, so one guy said in the description, each cord has nine knots. Another guy says each cord has three knots. Um, some other people wrote that they knew there was a lot of variation in lashes. So different regiments would use different things. I found a description of a man who was in the East India Company in 1780. So it's not really the army, but it's related to the army. And he's writing in India, so it's not ideal for our purposes of knowing what's going on in America. But he wrote, the adjutant brought a small whip made of cotton, which consisted of a number of strands knotted at the ends, but these knots were all cut off by the adjutant before the drummer took it which made it not worse than to have been whipped with cotton yarn. So all of a sudden we've got a guy talking about lashes that, that wasn't really very bad at all, like being whipped with a mop. Yeah, yeah. Now, was this an unusual thing or was this common? We don't know because we have far too few descriptions. Um, you want one more here? Yeah, sure, sure. Cat of nine tails is an instrument of punishment composed of small cords, nine in number, generally whipped at the ends with threads that are turned up and twisted round with a bit of thread to prevent their unfolding. The handle is wood. So there's not really much to go on, except that it's composed of small cords, nine in number. Um, yeah. You hear people talk about crazy things like, oh, they tie musket balls at the ends or weave pieces of wire in and all these... I've never found a primary source that indicates that these lashes had anything to anything besides whipcord. Yeah, I've I people confuse uh, Roman uh, army, the Roman army, with the British army sometimes. Um, Probably, and they sort of imagine that all these there's like a long tradition of this. Uh, people imagine that basically, uh, you know, people are using Indiana Jones bullwhip to lash people. Uh, there's you know, there's all sorts of uh, people latch on what they know and then impose it upon, you know, a blank space. Right. And they also tend to, to try to make it sound as bad as they can make it sound. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now the third regiment of horse in Ireland, the British cavalry regiment, they didn't come to America, but at least I have a piece of information right from the time period there in 1774 through 1776, when they had cavalry troopers get lashed, they used a thing called a crupper strap. Oh, my. And, uh, and this is a piece of horse tack that goes from the saddle back around the tail of the horse. Yeah. And it's pretty much they're whipping them with a leather belt. That, that, that would add up. <laughs> yeah, that would add up. So we've got, in general, in the infantry, we're using cats and nine tails, and they're described only vaguely. So 
we're kind of fuzzy about what these things really are. Then here in the cavalry, they're using a leather, leather belt. Um, but what I take away from this is there's a lot of variation just in the instrument that's being used, and we don't have a lot of good, real concrete information about what these last things were. So it gets very hard for us then to understand how punishing they were. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they're going to inflict a lot of pain, but the difference between leaving you with a badly stinging, very red back and having the flesh ripped off of your bones, that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. Without I don't know more about the instrument. It's hard to understand. Right. There's a, without knowing about the instrument, there's a very wide variety of outcomes. Right. And my impression from looking at a lot of data in general is that there were, in fact, a very wide variety of outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we'll get to some of them because those are, those are fascinating. I want to talk about the guy who uh, you mentioned who got 500 lashes, what, twice in the same year or twice within oh, six months? Yeah. I can if you we'll want those kind yeah. of stories, you can start giving lots of that. No, well, 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 hang on, hang on. Uh, uh, we, but we, I wanted to uh, ask a really important question. I had a devil of a time. In fact, it, I could not find an engraving or a picture of someone being flogged in the British Army until I think that an engraving from sometime during the Peninsular War. Um, did, have you found one contemporaneous no. to the revolution? I had the exact same problem. I couldn't find good imagery from this time period. And in the presentation you saw, I, mm -hmm. I think I directly apologized for it. I was using a lot of early 19th century images because that's all I could find. There's, there's one in particular that... Um, was heavily it was was reused and modified a couple times, which shows something like uh, what you read about for the American Revolution. Uh, essentially, the man is stripped naked and tied to sergeants, spontoons, or halberds, right? Halberds, um, yes. yeah. And um, I guess the, I guess in the Continental Army it would have been spontoons, um, but basically the sergeant instrument of the and and badge of rank almost for a sergeant. Um, and they are tied to a tripod of that. And uh, is, that, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Halberds are what a, a layperson would call a pole axe. Sure. It's, got a, it's about a six-foot-long pole, approximately six. I don't remember the length of it. And then it's got a, a fancy type of axe head thing on top. So when a person was lashed... He was brought to the halberds, which mm -hmm. was a common parlance of the time period. So you can use that as a you can use that as a metaphor for being last. He was brought to the halberds, and these were arranged in a tripod with then two one or two more as cross pieces. So it ends up looking something like an easel. Mm -hmm. uh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And then the man is tied up to it. And I had the great fortune to find a book written by a British military surgeon. And when yeah. we say surgeon in the 18th century, we mean, we mean doctor. So he's an army doctor. It's called the surgeon. He was a regiment. He was an army hospital surgeon in America during the revolution. And then in 1780, he went back to Great Britain and became a regimental surgeon. So he had a lot of great information specifically about this time period. And he wrote a book that he published in 1787 called Duties of a Regimental Surgeon Considered. And in his book, 
he has a whole chapter about lashing and flogging. Oh, how wonderful. Because his job as a regimental surgeon is to make sure that corporal punishment does not accidentally become capital punishment. That's an important, that's, that's such an important it, point. It's a huge point. Again, we have a legalistic system here and we've got courts that can prescribe only corporal punishment. And then we have, if it's a capital crime, it gets tried by a different kind of court and that court can sentence capital punishment. So if you sentence corporal punishment, it better be corporal punishment, not accidentally turn into capital punishment, or you've got a legal problem on your hands. You can't just beat a man until he's dead and, and then laugh it off because you've broken your own laws. So the regimental surgeon has an important job of watching a person get corporal punishment and deciding when the man has had enough, regardless of what the actual sentence was. And this fellow, Robert Hamilton, who was a regimental surgeon, wrote a book about how, how to be an army doctor, and it includes a whole chapter about what your responsibilities are to punishment. And one of the things he talks about in great detail is how to tie the man to the halberds properly so that the punishment can be administered well. Which sounds really, really, really creepy. And it is kind of creepy when you're reading it. But the man is going to be lashed on his bare back. And the goal is to inflict a lot of pain without doing any damage that could become fatal. Mm -hmm. Well, this means that the placement of where exactly on the man's back the lash hits is important. Because if you accidentally hit him in the neck a few times, you could kill him. In order to hit him precisely with a lash, he can't be a moving target. And this means he needs to be tied up to the halberds in such a way that he can't wriggle around. But you also can't tie him so tightly that you cut off his circulation and he dies from being basically crucified. Hmm. So the surgeon writes several paragraphs about this. The arms neither too tight bound nor overstretched. He's tied with his arms up over his head. Don't overstretch him too much. The thighs ought to be considerably tighter bound than the hands because it more effectively prevents swinging. Hmm. Um, if the cords are too loose, Hold on just a moment, I got something blocking my vision here. If the cords are too loose, room is allowed for swinging, whereby it is out of the power of the punisher to give lashes on the parts directed. So if you don't tie the man up to the halberds properly, you're not going to be able to punish him properly. Mm -hmm. Very sophisticated stuff here, no? And also very, um, as you say, legalistic in a way that we might not expect. Well, exactly. Um, now you've tied him to the halberds, and then we have to think about, okay, where do you hit him on the body in order to cause a lot of pain? And some of the pain you're causing is providing an example to other soldiers. So these punishments get witnessed by the whole regiment yeah, or the garrison or whoever happens to be there. It's done in a very public way and a big goal of corporal punishment is to be a deterrent to other men it's um i mean i i probably spent too much time in talking about this in, in in my book but 
to my mind, um, one sort of misunderstood aspect of the 18th century is the importance of, of, of society. Um, it's not an individualistic uh, era and not an individualistic society. Social shame is therefore of utmost importance. And in some ways, all, all punishment in England is social. Um, you're hung in public. Um, moreover than that, your head, uh, if after you're hung or if you're a pot, you know, it, it's cut off and it's put it in display. Um, these things are to shame, obviously not you anymore, but to shame anyone who knew you, anyone related to you. Um, to be lashed in front of the regiment, in front of all other interested spectators, perhaps, is in some level worse than the corporal punishment itself. Uh, well, that's well put. And may I go on a brief tangent? Sure, sure, absolutely. You mentioned my book, British Soldiers, American War, which is built around a number of writings by soldiers. And two of those writings are things called dying speeches, which I learned was a is a genre of early American literature. It is, yeah. Of printed material, where when people were sentenced to death, a printer went to the person soon before the sentence was to be carried out and had them tell their life story. Mm -hmm. Men quickly ran back to the print shop and printed up the life story and then sold them as broadsides at the execution. That's good money right there if you're a printer. And it's good money right there. And these dying speeches, not only often are they very nice little autobiographical accounts of the person being executed. They start off and they talk about when they were born and what they did. But they're also cautionary tales about how they fell into the misdeeds that ended up getting their, getting them executed. And they're saying, you know, don't do what I did or you'll end up like me. And so you're going to watch a person get executed and it's almost like buying the program, right? Yeah. You know, it's really side says, Here's how the guy got into this mess. So yeah. here's what you shouldn't do if you don't want to be up there next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so the social aspects of the punishment are very important. Um, and so is tying the man to the halberds properly so you can punish him correctly. And then the drummers of the regiment, yeah. presumably, because they're very good at waving their arms a lot. Um, they're the ones charged with administering the punishments. A regiment in peacetime has 10 drummers, and each drummer is going to give 25 lashes at a time. A soldier for a crime like being absent from barracks or stealing another man's shirt and selling it might get two or 300 lashes for that crime. So the drummers are going to go in rotation and give 25 lashes each until all the lashes are given. And Surgeon Hamilton writes, let their strokes fall on the shoulders, not on the neck. And if you think about physiology and where you'd like to get cut, you'd probably prefer the shoulder blades over the neck. Um, to punish so low down as the ribs should be avoided. If you start lashing a man around the base of the rib cage, you're starting to get near where there's vital organs close under the skin, and you don't want infections setting in there. Um, he writes, the posteriors, as well as the shoulders, can, without much risk of danger, bear a moderate punishment. <laughs> so you can beat the man on the butt as well as the back. But the important thing is what he says very carefully, and again, I'm just reading some individual sentences. He's got several pages that get into the 
the structure of the muscles and how blood vessels work and what the impact of the lash is like and all these things so that a doctor can look very carefully at how the punishment is progressing and see when he's decided it's enough. But what it really comes down to is you want to lash the person on the muscly parts of the body, not on places where there aren't muscles. I've got, um, I've got um, Dan Morgan. Uh, in front of me, uh, uh, him recalling how he was flogged. Um, let me re read that to you, and then you can uh, give your well-informed opinion upon <laughs> on some of re re read between the lines for us. Uh, this is uh, actually recorded by Dr. William Hill, or William Hill, uh, who was um, Morgan's pastor for the last four years of his life, and who uh, would often attend him when he was in his last illness. Uh, when he was uh, confined to bed. So Hill writes, Upon one occasion, while assisting in changing his linen, I discovered his back to be covered with scars and ridges from the shoulders to the waist. General, said I, what has been the matter with your back? Ah, replied he, that is the doings of old King George. While I was in his service upon a certain occasion, he promised to give me 500 lashes, but he failed in his promise and gave me but 499, so he has been owing me one lash ever since. While the drummer was laying them on my back, I heard him miscount one. I was counting after him at the time. I did not think it worthwhile to tell him of his mistake and let it go. What do you make of that? That's very interesting, and, uh, well, clearly the scars are permanent. He talks about the drummer. Well, he's really referring to the one drummer who miscounted because we know that a single drummer is not going to be able to give 500 lashes himself. Yeah. In another story, he says it was the drum major was calling, and afterwards he went and convinced him that he had made a mistake. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those, he tells this story numerous times to different people. So the fact that they're scarring makes it pretty clear that the skin was broken. Yeah. Um, obviously, Morgan didn't die from this. It intrigues me a little bit that 500 lashes would be administered in one go, because the most of the cases I've found where the lashes are over 250, they start getting administered in... 250 at a time, hmm. but I can't say that that's always the case universally and even Morgan doesn't really Say yeah. one way or another whether the lashes were all given in one go or not sure. You know, yeah, we sure. kind of assume that from the way he wrote it, but yeah. it could go either way there um, that the practice when lashes were given in, in several sets was to give him person 250 lashes then send them to the hospital and wait for him to heal wow at least some and then give them the next batch yeah and there's something to look forward to right jeez um, and in fact surgeon hamilton talks somewhat about the recovery process i don't have any notes in front of me about that but one of the things he says in describing how lashes should be given is he says let as little new skin as possible be wounded and in the paragraph that he talks about this, he's specific to say by new skin, he means the part that's healed over from a previous set of lashes. Jeez. Mm. Well, one thing this tells me is that if a man gets 250 lashes and then 
the direction is let the new skin be as little as possible wounded, but you've got to give them 250 more lashes. Person giving the lashes must be pretty precise and not just hitting the man all over the body because there has to be some places where there is old skin, so to speak, to lash him the next time. I mean, it, it opens a lot of questions of detail that we really don't have information to tell us about. Right. And it's, it's intriguing. Okay, I've given a man 250 lashes. Now he's back out of the hospital. I have to give him 250 more, and I don't want to hit him in a place where there's new skin healing in. Right. Is this just Hamilton? Is this his theoretical it's, desire? Is this something he's actually well, witnessed? I mean, this well, is... This, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this is what he says you need to do in order to ensure that, to avoid things like heavy infection setting in, in order to not do too much damage. Mm-hmm. Another facet of corporal punishment, as I've talked about, you don't want to kill the man. Well, you also don't want to disable him so that he can't be a soldier anymore. Right. Then you sort of defeated your purpose. You know, your real goal is to punish this man, but then have him able to go back and, when he's recovered, to serve in the army some more. Be able to march 40 miles. Right, exactly. Be able to march 40 miles. Because if you start just disabling your soldiers by punishing them, you're undermining your whole military system, really. Yeah. Um, so Hamilton has a lot of experience with this when he writes this out, and I take this, this is his recommendations, but I assume that everything he's saying he must know is at least possible, uh-huh, uh-huh. whether it's the common practice or not. Um, so maybe when somebody's getting lashed, not every single lash actually cuts the skin. Maybe he gets lashed and eventually... The lashes start breaking the skin, so there's some slits here and some slits there. And, you know, um, Morgan had scars up and down his back. How many? How thick were they? Yeah. It's not really made clear. He says in another place that the uh, flesh hung in, uh, what's the line? It hung in tags. Okay. That sounds pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, it, it does. Um, what... Uh, Speaking of dying from infection, have you found uh, that as an occurrence? Well, that's a great question. This is the real thing that I set out to find out with all this study, is I got intrigued by the idea that punishments of 300 and 500 and 1,000 lashes were very, very common. They were. Now, when I say common this doesn't mean that every single soldier is probably going to get these but but it's very routine for courts to sentence these big number of lashes and i thought how can an army remain effective if they're lashing people so much that it's going to disable them or kill them so i wanted to find out what was the real effect of the punishments on the strength of a regiment what happened to men who were punished afterwards? Um, what was the impact on the careers of individuals? And also, what was the proportion of men who were getting these punishments? And I've been lucky enough to find a pretty good data sample. We have some detailed punishment records from five regiments that I've used for the numbers I'm going to say. There's actually records available for eight or nine regiments altogether, and there's some reasons why I chose to analyze only a smaller sample at the moment. But I have a sample now for three regiments, 
or 1,372 regimental court trials. So these are men tried by a regimental court. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I found out was that in almost 1,400 trials, there were only about 900 men who were actually tried because there was a very high incidence of repeat offenders. And so I recognized right away that, wow, in any little social group, you've got a few bad eggs. So it's not a case where soldiers are just all soldiers are getting punished for everything. It's that you've got some men who are just discipline problems and they're getting in trouble over and over and over again. So about um, about two thirds. Um, let me say that again. About half of the men who are getting tried are getting tried a number of times over the four or five year period I was able to look at. Mm-hmm. Of all these cases, um, so I have 926 men who were tried in, in almost 1,400 trials, and only 480 of those men were actually lashed. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm looking now at a sample of about 5,000 men, and I find that about 10% of them a little under 10% ever got lashed at all. Mm-hmm. So that right away is important to me. So um, 5,000 men, about 900 of them ever got tried for anything, and about half of the ones who got tried actually got lashed for something. So about 10% of the men in my army get lashed. About just under 20% of them actually even go on trial for anything. Mm-hmm. So most of the men are pretty well behaved. I've got about 20% who get in some kind of trouble, and about 10% of them end up getting lashed. Then I went through and started following these men to muster rolls to find <laughs> out what happens to these guys who got lashed. So this is I, I we're, and, <laughs> this is the best. I'm sorry. I just, I look, I'm just chuckling in anticipation. Okay, well... <laughs> So I have 480 men who got lashed during a five-year period, and and typically they're getting 300 to 500 lashes. It varies a lot for a lot of reasons. And I found that of those 480 men, only three of them died within the next year after being lashed. And I'm looking at muster rolls, which do not tell me the cause of death. But I can at least say only three men died within a year after getting lashed, Mm -hmm. which tells me that lashing typically wasn't fatal. Even those three who died, I don't know, you know, that guy could have fallen off a boat and drowned for all I know or, uh, or, or what have you. I don't know why he died, but I know that 477 out of the 480 got lashed didn't die at all. I, I should say I'm not chuckling. I wasn't chuckling about that. Um, oh. But uh, the um, what that but to get we'll get back to that in a second. I, I that's a really important point because um, every time I've given a talk about Morgan and mentioned um, that he was lashed 500 times, um, someone will in the audience will knowingly nod, and I can see they'll either say out loud or or mouth death sentence. Exactly, um, and I hear that same thing all the time. Oh, that that was like a death sentence. Exactly. Five hundred lashes. Yeah, and I thought, wow, you know what? It wasn't a death sentence. Um, I found that of the four hundred eighty men who got lashed, 
53 of them deserted within a year. Hmm. Only. Well, that's kind of no surprise, except that most of this data comes from a time when the, regiment, when the regiments I'm looking at were doing a lot of recruiting, and there tends to be a high incidence of desertion among recruits anyway. Uh-huh. So if I just factor out the lashing and say what was the desertion rate in general for these regiments, there's no correlation between being lashed and desertion. Hmm. In other words, the desertion rate was not higher among the men being lashed than it was among the men not being lashed. Uh-huh. So, even though it sounds like a lot of deserters, the one regiment that was not involved in recruiting during this time had zero desertions mm-hmm. among us. Men. Um, let's um, let's wrap up by telling a couple of the stories. I, I was okay. chuckling at the thought of the guy who had gotten oh, that that the guy uh, who who I love who well he got lashed uh, twice in a year and then something special happened the next year. And okay. that's, I'll tell you that's an, ex- an example that completely blows away every preconception, at least my preconceptions, of what the British Army was like. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give a little bit of filler background here. Sure. That when the British Army came to America, yeah. sometimes men were transferred from one regiment into another in order to bring the regiments going on deployment were brought up to strength. And they were brought up to strength by transferring men from regiments that weren't going into deployment. And because they understood the demands of going on deployment, they only transferred men who they knew were going to be fit for service on this deployment. And the regiment receiving the men could make the choice about whether to accept them. And that's going to fit into this story. Mm-hmm. So only men who are in pretty good physical condition are going to be transferred into another regiment being deployed. So I have a man, John Pierce. He was in the 3rd Regiment of Foot. He enlisted in October of 1763. And then in November of 1774, so he's been in the Army for 11 years now, he got tried for a minor crime. I I don't have it written in front of me what the crime was, but he got 100 lashes. Mm. And I know that he received the lashes because we have that level of detail. So we got 100 lashes on November 17, 1774. And then on November 21st, 1774, only four days later, he was tried again for a different crime, and he got 300 lashes. So he's at 400 <laughs> lashes in a week. And then five months go by. It's now March 1775. He gets tried for another crime. He gets another 300 lashes. So he's got 700 lashes within a five-month period. Two months later, there's a regiment being sent to America, and they need soldiers who are fit for service to go into that regiment. And John Pierce, this guy who got lashed 700 times in the last five months, he gets drafted to be sent to America, (laughs) which tells us right away that he can't be in terribly bad condition because the regiment receiving the draft has the right of refusal and they're not going to take a guy who hobbles in with his flesh falling off his back. So somehow he got through 700 lashes in five months, 300 of which were only two months before, and he was still fit enough to service to be drafted. The 22nd Regiment comes to America. They land in Boston at the end of June. And at the beginning of August, 1775, John Pierce deserts by swimming across the Charles River, which is 
farther than I could ever swim without having been lashed 700 times within the previous year. Yeah. So <laughs> this guy is pretty fit, but there's also got to be something about the consequence of the lashes that we don't understand as well as we'd like to. Because this guy got lashed kind of a lot. And it didn't slow him down a bit. <laughs> yeah. What what happened to him in the end? Do you, have you figured that out? He deserted. And because his name is John Pierce, it's a pretty common name. Oh. I have not been able to trace him anymore. Yeah, almost enough John he, Pierce's to beat the John Smiths. Well, in right. 1775. Probably joined the American Army because that's what most professional soldiers did after they deserted. That's mm -hmm. what they do. Um, that's right. But... But he, but I can't trace him well enough because just in the region Massachusetts where he deserted to, there's enough John Pierce's. Yeah. Um, I haven't been able to spend enough time trying to sort it out. And then you look at the different ways you can spell Pierce, and it yeah. becomes muddy pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I that, could give you a few more examples. Yeah, give, like, us a, give us a couple more. We'll wrap it up. Okay, William Anderson, also in the 3rd Regiment of Foot. So he's a fellow soldier of um, John Pierce. In August of 1774, he was tried for absenting himself in the regiment, and he received 200 lashes and one month in the black hole, which is just a solitary confinement cell. Um, one month later, September 1774, he was out of barracks until 9.30 p.m. He got 50 lashes. One month later, October 1774, he was absent for one day, he sold some of his clothing, <laughs> and he walked out of a restaurant without paying his bill, and for that he got 500 lashes. One month later, November 1774, he was drunk, absent, and abused an inhabitant. Well, now he didn't get lashed this time. He got his coat turned, and he was chained to a bombshell for two months. And he was confined to the barracks. Explain what that meant, uh, having your coat turned and being chained to a bombshell. Yeah, well, having the coat turned just means he had to wear his coat inside out. So it's a mark of shame. Um, a bombshell is a shell fired out of a mortar. Cannons fired solid cannonballs. But if you wanted an exploding shell, that had to be fired from a mortar. And it's a much larger thing in diameter. It's a big, it's a hollow iron ball, probably about 13 inches in diameter. And I don't know the weight off the top of my head. Mm. It's a ball, so ball and he, chain. Yeah, so, so he's putting a ball and chain, a nice military type of ball. And he's confined to the barracks, which probably isn't very difficult when he's actually chained to a bombshell. <laughs> to also confined to the barracks for two months. Um, a few months later, he gets confined to the barracks again and chained to a bombshell. And then in 1775, he gets drafted to a regiment serving in America, and he ends up serving the entire war, apparently without any trouble, and then being discharged at the end of the American War, and he was given a land grant in Nova Scotia, which makes me wonder if just having the change of regiment was what was required for this guy. Mm -hmm. And there are story after story of men like this who received very large numbers of lashes and then continued to have long military careers. And in fact, as I pointed out, hardly anyone died after being last. A few were discharged within a year or so of being last, which means that maybe they were disabled by the lashes, but I can't prove that that's the reason why they were discharged. Some men who were just disciplined, habitual discipline problems were discharged because the army just didn't want them anymore. 
So I can't correlate lashing with disability, and I cannot correlate lashing with death. The numbers just are not there to support the idea that 500 lashes with his death sentence, and the numbers aren't there to show that 500 lashes were disabling. Mm -hmm. All the data we have shows that corporal punishment probably hurt a lot, but ultimately the man recovered and continued his career as a soldier. So I, I wasn't, well, I wasn't expecting this when we started talking, but the, the whole force of the conversation and everything you have to reveal about uh, flogging corporal punishment is point, puts, points out something about historical thinking um, that my friend, and he's been on the podcast a couple of times, Lendl Calder uh, likes, likes to say, which is that the problem uh, with most of us regarding history uh, is not what we don't know about the past, but the things that we know that just aren't so. That's well. That's very well put. We're filled with preconceptions. Sadly, there's an enormous amount of literature about the American Revolution that's filled with things that the writers just made up, or mm -hmm. they wanted to tell a better story and they decided they knew what must have happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then that's repeated by someone else. So, exactly. So that I I like to joke, and I'm not really joking, that there are 950 biographies of Washington. But eight, 920 of them, approximately, are the same book. Uh, people just repeat one thing to the next book um, until you've, you've got a lot of facts, quote-unquote, which just aren't so. It's, it, it's very true. Yeah, I, I always use primary source material because that's the most reliable, and even that sometimes has its issues. But, yes, if, you know, don't, trust any other author. Don't even trust me. I would love to have somebody replicate this analysis I've done on punishment. I would be happy to share the raw data with anybody who wants to take the time to pick through it and do the counting and sum up the numbers and decide whether I figured this out correctly or not, or even expand on it because there's more data that I haven't had the time to use yet. But the thing to take away from it, number one, is that the data is pretty scarce. So it's not easy. You, you can't just go out and find a few books about this topic. You have to use raw data and do a lot of spend a lot of time working with it. But only somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of soldiers were ever put on trial for any crime. So we've got a bunch of good eggs and a smaller proportion of guys getting in trouble only about 10% of the soldiers were lashed. So lashing was an awful punishment, but it only was awful for the people being punished. And almost all of the men who were lashed survived and continued to serve in the army, at least for a while. So the lashing, the corporal punishment was not a death sentence in general. Almost never. Well, my guest today has been Don Hagist. He is the managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution, which you can read at allthingsliberty.com. Something new pops up every day. He is also the author, most recently, of Wives, Slaves, and Servant Girls, Advertisements for Female Runaways in American Newspapers, 1770 to 1783. Don, uh, great talking to you, and hope to see you soon. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> For more
more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.